Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to help end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Join us all month for stories of true crime, true con, and urban legends from around the world. Happy Halloween, Huns! Hey, Hunbots and Hunbros, it's another bonus episode in October, and this one we are diving deeper into what I promised you last episode, and that is Billy McFarland. I know it might seem like an obsession, and you might be like, why are you so obsessed with him? But it's really fascinating, and I love the mind of, like, a con artist. It is very interesting. And also, I like to show receipts when he says, like, oh, you know, it's not like last time. I just kind of want to show you, like, all the other last times. Do you know what I mean? I want to protect people from losing their money. People are already losing their money. They're already buying his merch. They're already buying tickets. It's kind of a phenomenon, and I think that this episode is important, and I would really like to sort of showcase that. He is one of the scam fathers, and I wanted to tell his story. All of my sources and where I gathered information for this episode can be found in the show notes, and this is my opinion of Billy. I mean, it's a lot of other people's opinion of Billy, too, but like, I really hope that this episode and this story and timeline of his scams really kind of ties a lot of things together for people and makes people start seeing connections between things. You'll see what I mean. If if this is your first or second foray into Billy McFarland, you're in for a treat. (laughs) And because I'm telling a story about a man who gets away with presenting things not as they seem, I wanted to tell a story about a haunted house that presents itself not as it seems either. And I wanted to welcome our newest Hunbot Slayer to the Patreon, Gina Fazillo. Welcome! This week on the Patreon, Michelle and I went live to talk about our obsession with Love is Blind and a possible Hunbro in the cast. So we sort of went down uh, a little bit of a rabbit hole and made some predictions. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Anyway, enjoy the ghost story and enjoy the Billy expose. I hope you have as fun listening to it as I did making it. This tale of a haunted house is true, and because it is, every other haunted house story you have ever read may also be true. It was written by a patient of William Wilmer, whom after the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Clinic is named, and published by Wilmer in the American Journal of Ophthalmology in 1921. His patient, Mrs. H., describes what happened after her family and servants moved on November 15, 1912, into a large, rambling, high-studded house built around 1870 and much out of repair. The story goes, It had not been occupied for the owners for the past ten years, though occasionally it had been rented for the winter. The house was situated on a sunny street, and although the sun bathed the outside of the house, 
It rarely seemed to penetrate through the tall and narrow windows. All the floors and stairways were heavily carpeted. Absolute silence reigned through the house. Not a footfall could be heard. There was no electricity, the house being lit throughout by gas. Mr. H, who we'll call G, and I had not been in the house more than a couple of days when we felt very depressed. The house was overpoweringly quiet. The servants walked about on thickly carpeted floors so quietly that I could not even hear them at their work. One morning, I heard footsteps in the room over my head. I hurried up the stairs. To my surprise, the room was empty. I passed into the next room, and then into all the rooms on that floor, and then to the floor above, to find that I was the only person in that part of the house. I had not been in the house more than a couple of weeks when I began to have severe headaches and to feel weak and tired. I took iron pills three times a day and spent a couple of hours each afternoon in my room, lying down and resting. A rather discouraging process, as after my resting, my headache was always worse than it had been before. It had always been G's habit at night before going to bed to sit in the dining room and eat some fruit. In this house, when seated at night at the table with his back to the hall, he invariably felt as if someone was behind him, watching him. He therefore turned his chair to be able to watch what was going on in the hall. The children grew pale and listless and lost their appetites. The playroom at the top of the house they deserted. In spite of their rocking horse and toys being there, they begged to be allowed to play and have lessons in their bedroom. I grew more tired and indifferent to everything, and also felt very cold in the evenings, and wore shawls and scarves most of the time. The children seemed so poorly and I was so tired, I took them away the day after Christmas for the holidays. While we were away, G was frequently disturbed at night. Several times he was wakened by a bell ringing, but on going to the front and back doors, he could find no one at either. Also, several times he was awakened by what he thought was the telephone bell. One night, he was roused by hearing the fire department dashing up the street and coming to a stop nearby. He hurried to the window and found the street quiet and deserted. Soon, after the new year, the children and I, with the nurses, returned to the house. We all felt better for our change and returned quite glad to settle down again. Soon, however, the gloom of the house began to cast a shadow over us once more. The children grew paler and had heavy colds. When we went out at the doors, their colds grew less and they seemed better. My headaches returned, and I frequently felt as if a string had been tied tightly around my left arm. One night, I was awakened by a heavy door slamming quite near me. It woke G too, and he said to me, What was that? Only the door of the room, I replied. But as I grew more wide awake, I realized that it could not be any one of the doors of the room as they were tightly closed. Another time, a little bit before daylight, I was awakened by heavy footsteps going down the staircase behind a wall at the head of my bed. Then, a number of crashes downstairs, as if several pots and pans had been hit together or against the kitchen stove. Soon I realized that there was no staircase behind the wall, only the thickly carpeted front stairs of which no footsteps could be heard. Also, that it would be impossible for my room to hear any sounds from the kitchen, no matter how loud. On one occasion, in the middle of the morning, as I passed from the drawing room into the dining room, I was surprised to see at the further end of the dining room, coming toward me, a strange woman dark-haired and dressed in black. As I walked steadily on into the dining room to meet her, she disappeared, and in her place I saw a reflection of myself in the mirror, dressed in a light silk waist. I laughed at myself and wondered how the lights and mirrors could have played me such a trick. This happened three different times, always with the same surprise to me and the same relief when the vision turned into myself. 
As I was dressing for breakfast one morning, B, our four-year-old, came into my room and asked me why I had called him. I told him that I had not called him, that I had not been in his room. With big and startled eyes, he said, Who was it then that called me? Who made that pounding noise? I told him it was undoubtedly the wind rattling his window. No, he said, it was not that. It was somebody that called me. Who was it? And so on he talked, insisting that he had been called, and for me to explain who it had been. The days went on, and the children grew paler and more listless. Some days, as their cold seemed worse, I kept them in bed. Then again, as there did not seem to be very much the matter with them, and they appeared to be growing too fond of staying in bed, I made them get up and go for a walk in the sun. It was very hard to make them eat. B would play vigorously for a little while, and then would lie stretched out, limp and listless on the floor, a toy in front of him, clasped in his hand, his eyes glued upon it, and yet apparently neither seeing nor thinking about it. About half an hour later, perhaps, he would suddenly get up and play again. About this time, my plants died, some of them I had had for a number of years. I had a cold and cough, and ached all over, as if I were going to have an attack of the flu. But, as I had no fever, I went about as usual. G was not feeling at all well, either. He had a great deal of pain at the back of his head, and felt as if he was going to have typhoid fever for a second time. The servants, too, had grown pale and moved about the house listlessly. On the night of January 15th, we went to the opera. That night, I had vague and strange dreams, which appeared to last for hours. When the morning came, I felt too tired and ill to get up. G told me that in the middle of the night he woke up, feeling as if someone had grabbed him by the throat and was trying to strangle him. He sat up in bed and had a violent fit of coughing, which lasted about five minutes. His first thought had been that burglars were in the house, but as everything was quiet, he instantly dismissed the idea. It then flashed across his mind that I had been playing a joke on him, but upon looking at me, he saw that I was in a heavy sleep, very much as if I had been drugged. Until we lived in this house, I had always been a light sleeper, waking at the slightest sound. In this house, however, nothing seemed to wake or disturb me. Quite the contrary with G, for in the past he had always slept heavily, never hearing a sound, and nothing disturbed him. And now he was continuously waking, answering the telephone and the doorbell, which never rung, and looking for burglars, who never materialized. That morning, after breakfast, as was my usual custom, I sent for the children's nurse, a Scotch woman who had lived with me for several years. She looked worn out, and when I asked how the children had slept, she burst out with, it has been the most terrible night. This house is haunted. I laughingly told her that that was the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard. I would have said the same thing three months ago, she answered, but I have had such experiences that I am now convinced of it, and everyone in the house has had experiences too. She said that after being in the house two or three days, things had begun to happen, as she and the rest of the household had made up their minds that I ought not to be disturbed about it. But last night, she continued, when the children were attacked... It became my duty to let you know at once. While you were at the opera, she went on, about half past eight, B woke up and ran screaming through the hall to my room. Don't let that big fat man touch me. He was terrified. It took Fraulein and me until ten o'clock to calm him. He slept the rest of the night with me in my room. Fraulein slept in B's bed besides G. Jr. to protect him. G. Jr. did not wake up at all, but the muscles of his face kept twitching as if someone was continuously pinching him. In the morning, when he woke, he said indignantly to Fraulein, Why have you been sitting on top of me? And when she told him that she had not been sitting on top of him, but had been in the bed next to him, he said, No, you have been sitting on top of me. You were awfully heavy, too. 
Often in the evening, after the children have gone to bed, never until after dark and the lights are lighted, Fraulein and I may be laughing and talking, when all of a sudden we hear the heavy tread of an old man walking slowly and steadily along the hall on the floor above us. It had not been one of the servants, for I have often run upstairs to see, and I have found the whole upper story in the house in darkness and empty. Sometimes, as I walk along the hall, I feel as if someone was following me, going to touch me. You cannot understand it if you have not experienced it, but it is real. Some nights, after I have been in bed for a while, I have felt as if the bedclothes were jerked off me, and I also felt as if I had been struck on the shoulder. One night I woke up and saw sitting on the foot of my bed a man and woman. The woman was young, dark and slight, and wore a large picture hat. The man was older, smooth-shaven, and a little bald. I was paralyzed and could not move, when suddenly I felt a tap on my shoulder and I was able to sit up, and the man and the woman faded away. Sometimes, after I have gone to bed, the noises from the storeroom are tremendous. It does not happen every night. Perhaps a week or ten days will pass, and then again it may be several nights in succession. Sometimes it sounds as if furniture was being piled against the door, as if china was being moved about, and occasionally a long and fearful sigh or wail. The governess, Fraulein Y, then came to me. She also heard the noise in the storeroom, the moving and piling up of furniture. She slept in a big four-post bed with a canopy. One night, after she had been in bed a little while, she felt the bed shaken, and the canopy swayed. Thinking that a draft from the open window might be causing the sensation, she got up and closed them. She returned to bed, and after a short time, the shaking of the bed was repeated. Again, she got up, examined the room thoroughly, but was unable to unearth anything. I interviewed all the servants in turn. They all had heard at some time or another the footsteps at night going slowly along the corridor outside of their rooms. Each one at first had thought it was one of the others, and was surprised, after inquiring, to find none of them about. They all spoke of strange experiences after they had gone to bed, as if something crept around the bed, and then over them, and then they were unable to move. Sometimes it lasted for a long time, sometimes shorter. Not every night, but perhaps every second or third night. It never happened to them all on the same night, but to one and then to another. Much amused as we were by all these tales, we nevertheless felt as if there was a serious aspect to it. Why had all the servants whom we had had for several years gone practically mad all of a sudden? We began to trace back the history of the house. The last occupants, we found, had exactly the same experiences as ourselves, with the exception that they stated that some of them had seen creeping around their beds visions clad in purple and white. Going back still further, we learned that almost everyone had felt ill and had been under the doctor's care, although nothing very definite had been found the matter with them. Saturday morning, the 18th of January, G's brother told us that he thought we were all being poisoned. That several years before, he had read an article which told how a whole family had been poisoned by gas and had had the most curious delusions and experiences. He advised us to see Professor S. at once. As he was out of town, his assistant, Mr. S., came at once to see our house. We told him how listless and ill the children appeared. He found one of them lying on the floor and the other two in bed. We related the experiences of the children and the servants and told him about the plants. He examined the house thoroughly from top to bottom and interviewed the servants. He found the furnace in a very bad condition, the combustion being imperfect. The fumes, instead of going up into the chimney, were pouring gases of carbon monoxide into our rooms. 
He advised us not to let the children sleep in the house another night. If they did, he said, we might find in the morning that some of them would never wake again. Early in the afternoon, our physician arrived and examined the children and agreed with Mr. S. that they were being poisoned. He also stated that none of us ought to stay in the house another night. And here ends the account of Mrs. H. According to Dr. Wilmer, Mrs. H. and her family all eventually recovered and never again reported seeing, hearing, or feeling any ghosts. Many victims of carbon monoxide poisoning are not so lucky, however, and continue to suffer from similar symptoms for years, even after their exposure ends. Given that carbon monoxide is still the most common cause of toxic poisonings and deaths in America, it is probably still a common cause of haunted houses. If you or others in your home ever experience any of the ghostly symptoms reported by Mrs. H., you should have your furnace, oven, and other gas appliances inspected by a professional for carbon monoxide. While it's also a good idea to install carbon monoxide alarms, those are designed only to save your life from very high levels of carbon monoxide exposure and may not warn you of the lower levels known to cause headaches, depression, and other symptoms reported by Mrs. H. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Spring is in the air, and with that comes spring cleaning, especially those closets. I am beyond guilty of keeping pieces around that I no longer wear, I'm hoping to fit into again, or I just can't seem to get rid of for whatever reason my brain uses to justify the hanger space. But this year, I am implementing the one-year rule and spring cleaning my wardrobe with the help of Quince. As a sponsor of Life After MLM, shopping with Quince is a great way to support the show and get some cute new items to treat yourself once the purge is over, too. Once you put your seasonal and holiday items in the back of the closet, it's time to purge what's left and see what can be donated and what needs to be retired for good. It's only then that you can organize your keepers and see where you can amp up your style for the coming year. And that's where Quince comes in. By partnering directly with top factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing, Quince cuts the cost out of the middleman and passes the savings onto us at 50 to 80% less than similar brands which means you can stretch your dollar and save on great staple pieces that will last through at least a few spring cleanings. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com MLM for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot MLM to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com MLM. If you've been following me on social media lately, you may have noticed an uptick in Billy McFarlane content. Ever since he was released from prison, yes, you heard that right, he's out. 
I've been keeping tabs on him and what he's up to. He does still owe $26 million from fire, after all. But the more Billy content I made, the more the same comment kept coming up. Who is Billy McFarland, and why should I know him? It's shocking how often I answer this question, and I usually just say, he's the American fraudster behind Firefest, but it's honestly so shocking how many people don't know that I sometimes have to ask them what they were doing in 2017. But Billy began scamming long before 2017, and to understand what he's trying to do today, I need to tell you what he did back then. Most of you who know about Billy either learned it from last week's episode, my TikToks, or the Fire Festival documentaries. There are two. I recommend Fire Fraud on Hulu. It's made by the same people who made Lula Rich, and it includes an exclusive Billy interview that is too good to pass up. The other one is made by the media company Fuck Jerry, who I think are just as guilty and complicit as these scammers, but it's an informative watch that gives more context into the event and the web of lies, even if we're being gaslit by Fuck Jerry a little bit. But Billy's scam started way, way, way back to his time as a kid. One of his earliest scams was fixing the broken crayons of his friends on the playground in elementary school. I'm not sure how he fixed them because I've been trying for years, and aside from melting them back together, I don't see a permanent fix. But Billy would offer this crayon fixing service for a dollar. A quick Google search shows you that nowadays that's a pretty bad deal, as you can get an entire box of brand new name brand crayons for less. And then when you factor in inflation, you can see where this grift was born. Billy grew up very well off with lots of privilege. I really want to make this clear. He was raised in Short Hills, New Jersey, and his parents are real estate developers. In Forbes magazine's ranking of the most expensive zip codes in the United States, Short Hills was listed among the top 100 nationwide, coming in sixth in 2006. It is the wealthiest community in the United States in terms of having the highest percentage of households at 69% with incomes above $150,000 a year. In fact, the median income in Short Hills is 229222 Like I said, lots of privilege. By the age of 13, Billy had founded an online startup that matched clients with web designers, and he outsourced the entire thing. He graduated in 2010 from the Pingree School, and over the years, Pingree has consistently been ranked in the top three in New Jersey and in the top 1% nationally. Then he headed to study computer engineering at Bucknell University, a private liberal arts college where tuition is upwards of $60,000 a year. And he dropped out in May of his freshman year while working on his next big idea, Spling. Now a college dropout, he moved home to work on Spling and raised capital after he, quote, quickly realized it was pretty unrealistic to leave school one day and expect to have the resources and network to succeed in a city like New York the next. Technically called it an easy way to share content between friends. But TechCrunch described Spling as a content sharing network and criticized its similarity to other services which existed at the time, saying, quote, For some reason, startups keep reinventing the content sharing space, despite the popularity of networks like Facebook and Twitter and even Google+. Spling is, or was, well, I'll let Spling tell you. You just found a hilarious video, delicious recipe, or even an interesting article online. Now you want to share it with your friends. What do you do? Sure, you could paste the link into multiple email threads, send it over Instant Messenger, or post it to your other online profiles, but that takes a long time and good luck finding it again when you need it. 
Meet Spling. Spling allows you to share the media you discover on the internet with the single click of a button. Oh, and did we mention? You can choose exactly who to share it with. Spling also allows you to discover media through your friends, the people you trust and care about, in one convenient location. Unlike conventional avenues, Spling removes the noise, allowing you to experience the best of the internet. Sound cool? It is. I know we chatted briefly about magnesis in the last episode, so I wanted to dive a bit more into it here and explain away any confusion. In August of 2013, Billy founded Magnesis, a card-based membership club that he had seeded with $1.5 million in investor funding. It's important to remind you that this is not a credit card, but a club membership, and its members could use the card to purchase and earn social perks by first linking it to a pre-existing card. It was sometimes compared to an Amex Black card, but aside from being black, metal, and having membership perks, that's where the similarity stopped. A Black Amex is an invitation-only credit card that's estimated to be offered when customers spend $250,000 annually. Magnesis was Billy's workaround to bring that level of status to the masses, so he found a provider in China that could embed magnetic strips from your creditor into a new card, and Magnesis was born. The Black card targeted status-oriented millennials in big cities like NYC, with Champagne Dreams and Boone's Farm Promises. It was designed to offer exclusive perks, a private townhouse hangout, discounts, and give members access to high-end restaurants, bars, clubs, and events. Billy marketed the car via invitation only and invited people to the townhouse to interview for an exclusive opportunity. And this is where Ja Rule first enters the chat. The rapper was hired as a spokesperson for Magnesis and was heavily involved with the business and allegedly helped design some of the membership events. VIP events were offered to cardholders with some notable exclusive events, including Johnny Walker tastings, Tesla test drives, Magnesis fashion shows attended by Richard Fortas from Guns N' Roses, an anniversary party in Ibiza with rappers Ace Hood and Jules Santana, and a Brooklyn party with rapper Rick Ross, just to name a few. Fun fact, the Magnesis townhouse was actually a private residence in Manhattan's West Village that Billy rented and used for business and pleasure and Anna Delvey, of Inventing Anna fame, squatted there as a couch surfer for about seven months. He conducted business meetings there, hosted Magnesis gatherings and dinner parties for members, and it also served as the home base for the Magnesis Club. A lawsuit was opened by his landlord for the cost of damages up to $100,000 for the parties thrown in the townhouse and the lease violations caused by using the residence as a headquarters to conduct business out of. By November of 2016, three years after launching, Magnesis claimed that they had 100,000 card users. During this same time, users began complaining about the failed refunds on their discounted tickets and events that were failed to be delivered on. The Better Business Bureau graded their business as an F. Here are some real Yelp reviews from Magnesis members. Overpromise, underdeliver. These guys are a total joke, a very amateur business. This club is crap. They still have not refunded me for Hamilton tickets. $500 plus? Do not join. Do not trust. Rarely in life does a restaurant or service provider let you down so thoroughly and consistently that you rank them among your greatest regrets in your entire life. But that's truly how I feel about Magnesis. No hyperbole. I was nominated to join this 
elite group and they selected me to join a group that is basically like guilt group. You get access to deals and such, but you have to pay for it. Sure, you get access to their town house, but whenever you go, it feels like a fraternity that you don't belong to yet. Very standoffish, and so her house wannabe. If you change a couple of words, you can define magnesis in a very similar fashion to how one would define a Ponzi scheme, a fraudulent non-existent enterprise that is fostered by the payment for services months in advance from its members and use these sales to fund its operational costs. How's that for foreshadowing? You get the idea. This was around the same time that Billy decided to launch Fire Media. According to its LinkedIn page, Fire is an on-demand service that makes booking the most influential celebrities, artists, athletes, models, and entertainers seamless and transparent and specializes in entertainment booking, celebrity booking, live streaming, and 360 video production. Basically, it was an app that connected music artists with fans who wanted to hire them to play small gigs and events. And it was actually a pretty cool idea and a way to make the app the middleman for these bookings. It was a popular enough idea that they hired a full-time development team and started getting big names to think about investing, like Comcast Ventures, who had promised them $25 million. And here is where the scam was born. To promote the app, Billy decides to host a music festival and get his buddy Ja Rule involved. On a private trip to the Bahamas in a small plane, they land on a tiny island known as Norman's Key. It is the former residence of Carlos Later Rivas, former member of the Medellin drug cartel. In the late 1970s, it is estimated that Carlos spent $4.5 million buying up the island to run a cocaine transport empire there. From 1978 through 1982, the Key was the Caribbean's main drug smuggling hub and a tropical hideaway for the cartel. At the height of the operation, 300 kilos of coke would arrive on the island daily, and Carlos's wealth grew into the billions. On July 10, 1982, he was captured, extradited, and the property was confiscated. Nowadays, it's a tourist destination, and according to Billy and Jaw, it was the perfect spot for their festival. It had enough infrastructure to hold the amount of people they wanted to invite, a fully operational airport and runway, multiple existing buildings, and it was gorgeous. There is even a fully submerged World War II C-46 aircraft right off the coast that you can swim and dive in. Rumor has it it was once a drug plane, but the true story is it never even got the chance. It was accidentally crashed by a pilot named British Andy, who had had a little too much to drink before going for a joyride. The new owners negotiated a deal with Fire, which included the caveat to not mention the history of the island or the connection to Pablo Escobar and the drug cartel. The next logical step was to get to work on Fire Festival. They hired media company Fuck Jerry to help them promote the event and flew back down to the Bahamas, but this time with a full camera crew and a buttload of supermodels to party with and film the whole thing. On December 12, 2016, social media influencers broke Instagram with a single orange square and the promise of an incredible immersive music event over two weekends in the spring of 2017 in the Bahamas. The actual experience exceeds all expectations. It is something that's hard to put in words. All these things that may seem big and impossible are not. It gives people that type of energy, that type of power. 
Rumors began to fly, and Billy did the one thing that he was asked not to. He claimed the island was once owned by Pablo Escobar, and they lost their exclusive location. At this point in our story, it's important to remind you that there are roughly four months until the event, and they were desperate for a location that could house the massive festival. They looked at multiple locations, but nothing worked out. And with only two months to go, Billy gets a permit for a plot of undeveloped land from the Bahamian government. It is literally a concrete parking lot behind the Sandals Resort on the island of Great Exuma. It doesn't even have a beach, just a steep drop off to the craggy jetty below. But on social media, everything is plugging along as planned. The festival has continued to be promoted as being on an exclusive island. The marketing materials are cropped and cut to make this pit look more like a tropical destination. And Billy never announces any of the changes. He just renames the plot Fire Key. And all the lying through his teeth worked in his favor because he continues to convince people who have money to give it to him, raising millions of dollars for the event. Tickets are selling like hotcakes. Prices started at $500 for tickets and VIP packages, which included airfare and luxury accommodations, were priced at $12,000 and up. They claim to have luxury tents, private villas, yachts, top cuisine from celebrity chefs, and the best musical entertainment, including Tyga, Blink-182, Major Lazer, Migos, Lil Yachty, and more. Festival-loving millennials were losing their minds. They were maxing out their credit cards, selling their furniture, subletting their apartments, all to afford the weekend-long event. And aside from all the very obvious red flags that we are all experiencing here right now, there's more. Every year, during the exact same weekend, the island of Great Exuma shuts down for the annual Great Exuma Family Regatta, a massive island-wide sailing event that draws huge crowds of locals, meaning on that weekend, it would be really hard to find any additional help, accommodations, taxi drivers, etc., because literally everyone would be at the regatta. As the festival drew nearer, there were some skeptics on social media who were exposing the lies and hoping to save some souls before they refinanced their life for a chance at fire. Fuck Jerry went hardcore, deleting all of the negative comments and keeping ticket goers in the dark about the realities that awaited them. It was stupidly irresponsible. As the days grew nearer, Billy needed more money because it costs a lot to do nothing, scam people, and ride your jet ski all day. So he got a loan from Ezra Birnbaum for several million dollars on the promise of a $500,000 return within 16 days. So Billy created another scam, the wristband scam. Claiming to be a cashless event, Billy encouraged all of the ticket holders to load up electronic wristbands with funds for any activities on the island, and people fell for it. The scam raised $2 million in funds, which was more than enough to pay back the first installment on the loan. One of the people exposing the scam on Twitter was able to give Comcast a heads up days before they were planning on giving $25 million to fund the Fire app, and they pulled their investment just in time. We heard Gina's story on the last episode about what actually went down there and what was actually happening from someone who was on the ground. And it was a Lord of the Flies level shit show. It was a uh, tropical storm. So it was like hurricaning out and in the morning and we get there and everything is just destroyed. It wasn't even finished to begin with. It was never set up. It might've been set up like maybe a day or two before we got there, like maybe. And it was just the tents that were set up. We can't even set up the concierge stuff until we have the tents set up. So our team of concierge guest experience actually had to help the local workers get the beds dry. Like there's like some people like holding like a fan and like trying to dry. 
<laughs> in like a hundred degree heat, really humid. And like the heat, some people had to go back to the cruise ship because it was so hot and like they were going to get heat stroke. I, I mean, it's, it's just a tragedy. And I'm just like, I'm literally watching like the world burn down. You know, the images where you see the luggage and it's pitch black. There's no lights. So these people are running around and there's no bathrooms because they locked all the porter potties. There was no food, no, nothing, and barely any water. And like it, they were like guarding that, that water too. It was embarrassing, beyond dangerous. Some of the locals can't, I'm not kidding. It was like torches. I mean, because it was so dark out, torches and like basically pitchforks. And they're trying to find the people responsible. And we're trying to explain to them like, hey, we got screwed over too. Like Gina said, the night before the event, there was a huge storm and what little they had put together and gotten done was essentially ruined. As planes began to land that AM, there was nothing else they could do. And to be honest, I don't even know what they could have done at that point, aside from canceling it entirely. So the festival is a flop. The bands pull out. It's a free for all for accommodations and food which were paltry cheese sandwiches and guarded bottled water. People are setting fires, assaulting concert goers, and just being generally gross. Only one band played fire. It was a local band who kept the scared concert goers company throughout the night. And it's at this point in the story where the police come looking for Billy when he escapes via the private plane and is caught a few days later and charged with fraud. While out on bail, he runs another scam. Selling tickets for events he doesn't actually have tickets for, like the Met Gala. And he uses the fire mailing list to send these emails and gets caught almost immediately. And additional charges are added to his sentence. In March 2018, Billy McFarlane pleads guilty to one count of wire fraud in what the U.S. Justice Department called a scheme to defraud investors, as well as a second count of wire fraud related to the scheme to defraud the ticket vendor. In October 2018, Billy is sentenced to six years in prison, of which he only serves three and a half, and is ordered to forfeit $26 million. He also spends two different stints in solitary. One, I don't know, I'm assuming because he was kind of a notable figure, but the second was for attempting to profit off of his crimes by using his daily phone call to record a podcast called Dumpster Fire. When asked if fire was a scam, Billy said, if the event was exactly as advertised and people had the best four days of their lives, I still would have gone to jail because the crime was lying to the investors. I legitimately put in everything I had, every ounce of energy, every dollar I could scrape by to make the festival work. I don't feel like I scammed the people who were trying to go. I feel like I scammed the people who were backing me. Yeah, guy's a real peach. Fast forward to today. He's out of prison and he's ready to do it again. Remember how I said Billy was released two and a half years early? When asked if he felt if his sentence was enough, Billy said, When I first went to prison in upstate New York, I was around a lot of financial crime people who had way larger crimes than me and less time, so I was a little sour. Then, as I got into trouble and moved into different prisons and saw people with 20 or 30 years who I think did something way, way less morally corrupt and had way more time, I started thinking I got luckier. So my current position is... It was the right amount of time. Now, what I'm about to share with you is what I have gleaned over following Billy very closely since his release from prison in March 2022. His release comes with a couple of rules, including three years supervised probation, court-ordered mental health screenings, and the stipulation that he's not allowed to serve as director of a public company. After he was released from prison, Billy needed to make some money, so he started by selling signed trading cards and hawking messages on Cameo. He was really big in the marketing company and 21st birthday genres. But obviously, 
He needed to think bigger if he was going to make a dent in that restitution. In October 2022, he posted on social media that he was planning a new business venture called Pirate, spelled P-Y-R-T, and teased more details to come in November. Hey guys, it's Billy McFarland. As you might know, I effed around. And because of that, I definitely found out. Obviously, I've had a little bit too much time to think about this, but I do feel like the moment's right to start making this up to everybody. You might have guessed, but I'm working on something new. This time, it's a little crazier, but a whole lot bigger than anything I've ever tried before. I promise I'm going to tell you everything in November. But before we get there, there's one thing you need to know now. This time, everybody's invited. Now, I don't know about you, but like when I look into scams and frauds, I always do what I like to call a stupid name check. Most MLMs fit the bill for the stupid name check. And it seems Billy follows suit as well. I mean, come on. After stealing over $26 million from a busted scam in the Caribbean, you have the audacity to name your next scam pirate? These clowns really do tell you exactly who and what they are, don't they? Hey guys, it's Billy. The first bottle is officially up for grabs. The treasure hunt starts now. This is a message in a bottle. There's only gonna be 99 of these placed around the world. You need one to start with the treasure hunt. Some might look similar, some might look different, but they all come with their own unique clues and treasure. This first one, putting in my home city in New York. You have 48 hours to find it. prize for the elaborate Buccaneers ruse, as it turns out, was a trip to the Bahamas, where Billy would allegedly host Pirate. In a healthy dose of word salad of Vanity Fair, he described it as VIDR, or Virtual Immersive Decentralized Reality, a term he totally made up. Allegedly, Pirate would combine communal geocaching with the treasure hunt, tourism with what Billy called, quote, basically a small pirate hotel, love the specifics there, content creation because the hotel would be live streamed, and a reality TV-esque ability for viewers at home to tip the stream that would trigger responses from those at the hotel. Kind of like those weird TikTok AI NPC lives this summer, but like much, much bigger. Billy had claimed on a podcast to have, quote, plenty of support from the Bahamas for Pirate, but 10 days before the episode dropped, Chester Cooper, the deputy prime minister of the country, called Billy a fugitive and made one thing very clear. The government of the Bahamas will not endorse or approve any event in the Bahamas associated with him. The Royal Bahamian Guard literally coming for him in the aftermath and the estimated 300,000-ish that is still owed to the workers in the Bahamas, it is no surprise. 
Eric Bratcher, a 29-year-old former property manager, started working for Billy remotely from his home in Gainesville, Florida in 2022, conducting business research, acting as a liaison between Billy and his remaining business partners, and helping Billy type up his memoir from the pages of barely legible, grammatically incorrect handwritten notes that he had taken in prison. Billy claimed that he had struck a million-dollar book deal and claimed the proceeds of the book would help partially fund Pirate. Eric says, I took it to two different typists and one said, this is going to be an astronomical amount of money. A source with knowledge of the situation told the Daily Beast that no book deal ever existed. Eric says the fraudster owes him close to $100,000 for his work. John Taylor, a buddy of Billy's from prison, who spent three and a half years locked up after his 2015 conviction on child sex trafficking charges after knowingly soliciting a 15-year-old girl, gave Billy $640,000, which was also partially used to fund Pirate. When asked if Billy thought Pirate was a scam, he says, I don't know if it's going to work, but I know that I'm going to try really hard and just do it the right way. If I lie to anybody again, I go to jail for a very, very long time. Yet, Pirate never came to fruition. And Billy McFarland's probation officer has declined to answer questions about whether or not Billy has violated his probation. Earlier this year in April, Billy announced plans for Fire 2, claiming that he owes it to everyone to basically make it right. He claims a lot of things, including that he's already secured funding, though I've seen lots of videos of venture capitalists who make videos with Billy publicly and then say they won't be investing in Fire 2 in private live chats. He's also selling merch for astronomical prices and no promises that it goes to pay any of his outstanding restitution. And they launched their first round of tickets and claim that Fire 2 was sold out. 72 hours has completely changed my life. As I'm sure you've heard by now, the tickets sold out really, really fast. And this is definitely going to frustrate a lot of you, but we now have 6,900 people on the wait list for Fire Festival 2. I have gotten emails with offers for crazy money to buy tickets, but we are not selling any more tickets until we do the announcement with our partner. However, today we are dropping Fire Festival merch. Here's one of our old hats. The new merch is different. And I am picking five people who buy merch this week and copying you each two tickets to Fire Festival 2. Thank you guys for all the love. Thank you guys for all the hate. Together, you're creating the absolute perfect storm. And I can't wait to give the rest of you a front row seat as I fly right through it. But let me explain because it's very confusing and it's a big fat lie. According to videos of Billy, he claims Fire 2 will have attendance into the tens of thousands, and he released, quote, pre-sale tickets for $4.99. Originally, there were 777 pre-sale tickets, with prices increasing as you go to enhance the FOMO. And only 100 of those 777 tickets of the 10,000 that Billy talked about have been sold. That's 1% of tickets sold. That's like so far from sold out that I think it's the farthest you can go while actually still using whole numbers. But recently, literally just the other day on social media, he threw me a curveball because he probably knew that I had written this in a script and he changed the tickets. I will link the video I made in the show notes so you can catch up. But if you go to the website to buy tickets, the 777 tickets, they don't exist anymore. They're gone. And he has upped the prices of all of these tickets where the highest package is $250,000. It's wild. Okay. You have to go check it out. I will link it in the show notes. But this is all par for the course because with everything Billy McFarland, it's always a scam. He can't own the business legally, but he can be the face of it. 
and he can't host another event while on probation. The website claims that Fire 2 isn't happening until December 2024, but with an asterisk saying that the date can be changed at any time. December 6th, 2024 is only four months from the end of March 2025, which is Billy's official end of probation. The tickets that are sold so far are being held within a ticket escrow and cannot be touched until a final date is announced. And everything is within the law and his probation, so nothing is, quote, illegal. But nothing is stopping him from announcing a post-March 2025 date, getting the millions of dollars in escrow, and just jumping ship. There were also concerns in my comments about felons being able to travel outside of the U.S., so I looked it up. And they can if they've completed their sentence and there isn't a court order barring them from traveling outside of the country. And as we just learned, Billy is considered a fugitive in the Bahamas. But even so, a boat international waters and maritime law is a gray area. And so until then, I will be keeping tabs on Mr. McFarland and not letting him get away with scamming people again without screaming from the top of the mountains to watch out for this man. He still owes every penny of his $26 million in restitution while he lives it up in New York City, partying with millionaires and celebrities while an entire new generation of people who have no idea who Billy is fall for his narcissistic lies and scams with stars in their eyes. Billy is and will forever be an American fraudster, scammer, con man, and target of my obsession to expose the truth about the greatest party that never happened and the scam father who made it all not happen. If you are listening to this and you are a victim of fire or a victim of Billy McFarland and you would like to tell your story, please hit me up. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our new website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. <laughs>